0: Hello, and welcome to Boiled Down. I'm your host, Greg Astley, Orla Director of Government Affairs. And joining me today from the Orla team is Lori Little, Director of Communications. Hi, Lori.
1: Hey, Greg. How are you doing?
0: You know, I'm doing well, but I kind of feel like maybe we've done this before. Does it feel like that to you?
1: I think we have. Yeah. We just passed Groundhog Day, and unfortunately, six more weeks of winter.
0: Yeah. Six more weeks of winter. Let's hope it's not six more weeks of COVID and all the stuff that we've been dealing with. I'll tell you 2020 to me kind of feels like that movie groundhog day with Bill Murray, just one day after another, the same thing over and over again.
1: Yeah. You know, I tell you, um, I use my iPhone just uh, as an uh, alarm when I need to get up at a certain hour. And, uh, usually every day I do need to get up at a certain hour, but, um, There are times that I feel like smashing the heck out of that thing, and I think twice because, well, that's a little expensive to replace an iPhone.
0: Absolutely. The big question is whether or not it's Sonny and Cher that's waking you up every morning or if it's a different artist.
1: I like Sonny and Cher. I'm not sure that would get me out of bed, though.
0: (laughs) Well... Now that you're out of bed, uh, we're gonna be talking about integrating new workplace standards with Liz Hill and Kim Henry of the Safe and Healthy Workplace Center within the Safety and Health Division at SAFE Corporation. But first, we wanna make sure you're getting the most out of your membership. And to help you do that, we like to highlight a benefit that you may or may not be aware of. Did you know that members who qualify get 21% off their workers comp premiums with SAFE This represents the largest discount available for Oregon's hotels and restaurants in the program, and there's no minimum annual premium. You can ask your agent for an Orla Group quote today to see if you qualify for these massive savings. You can also learn more at oregonrla.org. And if you're not a member, visit oregonrla.org today where you can join and start taking advantage of the many exclusive cost-saving benefits. And now I'm very excited to introduce our guests, Liz Hill, Safe Total Worker Health Advisor, and Kim Henry, Safe Industrial Hygienist, both working in the Safe and Healthy Workplace Center within the Safety and Health Division at SAFE. That's a lot of Safes in there. Well, Welcome, Kim and Liz. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having us. Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: So um, we want to get started. We're going to just kind of jump right in here. Um, obviously, with you know, COVID-19, the pandemic, everything that's been going on, there's a lot of questions about uh, what people are doing, what they need to do, some of the regulations and things. And one of those that's come out has been the um, safety and health temporary rules for infectious diseases. Uh, can you tell us how long the, the temporary rules will be in place and how likely they become permanent uh, post-COVID. And just whoever wants to jump in first, you get to go.
3: (laughs) I I think there's two things there, and and thanks for asking this question. We heard uh, from Oregon OSHA earlier, either late last week or earlier this week, that they do have some dates and also uh, some news on how permanent the rule will be. So what we know now is that the temporary rule will be in place till May 4th, 2021. And at that time, um, since it was a temporary rule, what uh, Oregon OSHA is planning on doing at the moment is making the temporary rule permanent on May 4th. So essentially, uh, the temporary rule rule becomes the permanent rule. And at some point, um, once the pandemic is under control or we, we see no longer the need for these particular rules to be in place, they will rescind that rule, which leaves them open to have Uh, a permanent infectious disease rule that would not be specific to COVID, for example. We don't know yet if that, when or what that will look like. Um, There are some things, and Kim, I know, has delved into this a little deeper than I have. There will be some changes um, from the temporary rules to that permanent rule on May 4th. And maybe she can speak to some of the differences between what the temporary rule will be and what the permanent rule uh, will be.
2: Yeah, sure. I'll I'll jump in on that, um, and and to what Liz just said, too, the temporary rule and the permanent rule that we're talking about coming into place in May is really specific to COVID nineteen. So it's not. Um, there was discussions going on earlier um, and last year about having an infectious disease rule, but they've since decided this needs to be specific to COVID nineteen, and. Um Once like Liz said the pan- pandemic's over, then the rule will basically go away um, But the federal level, OSHA is looking at a an infectious infectious disease rule, and Oregon OSHA will probably look at that down the road, but right now it 's all related to covid nineteen so I think that's one thing to focus on and with regard to uh there's not a lot of significant changes um except a couple maybe, but um, Oregon OSHA has put out some dates for public uh, review of the proposed changes. And those dates you can find on um, Oregon OSHA's website and sign up for one of the hearings and sit in and offer feedback. But I will say that a couple of things that they, um, one new section is vaccine-related, that is new. So that was not in the temporary rule. Um, it's, it's for all workplaces. So that's key as well. It's not just exceptional risk workplaces. So the vaccine section basically states that employers will cooperate with health authorities when indicated to vaccine, you know, um, if they need to do a vaccination event within the workplace, then they'll cooperate with that. The costs of covering vaccines are addressed in the rule. And then also, if an employee declines the vaccine, there's discussion right now of documenting that declination and the employer needing to document that. And Oregon OSHA is stating right now, anyway, for the permanent rule that they'll provide like a model declination form for employers to use. So that's really new. That wasn't even in the previous in the temporary rule and other things that I think would be notable are just mostly there's nothing with regard to uh, Appendix A does have a specific industry or activity section for um, restaurants and bars and pubs. Nothing in that has changed that I can tell right now for the permanent rule. and just a few tweaks around the ventilation systems for building owners. And they talk about certifying in writing that you are looking at your ventilation system and making sure it's working well, and that you're verifying that you're pulling in as much outside air if possible, if that's applicable to your ventilation system in your building. Mm -hmm. So not a whole lot, but a few things.
1: Kim, thanks for that. I know that there are... um... There were some differences there. I just want to make a quick mention uh, to the listeners that we will have uh, links um, associated to sort of what we're talking about today because there's a lot of information out there, but uh, most of it is found on Oregon OSHA uh, website. So,
0: that's great. Thanks. So, Kim, I, I want to touch on one of the things that you mentioned, and that is the the uh, the declination form, or you know, employees declining getting a vaccine. Um, is that something that's possible and under what conditions can, you know, can employers require, uh, employees to have a, a vaccine to come back to work?
2: The short answer to that is no. <laughs> I think, um, there are some, there, there's not a requirement and Oregon, uh, health authorities, not indicating that there's a requirement for this, nor is Oregon OSHA for uh, an employee to work or come back to work, that they must be vaccinated. And um, you you can require, but you have got to have some very good reasons that you're going to do that. And you really need to be uh, consulting with your legal attorneys and looking at that. Um, There's two exceptions broadly across the nation and in Oregon. Uh, for religious beliefs or medical conditions uh, that would contraindicate having a vaccine. Uh, Those two reasons you can decline a vaccination, of course, and you would not be able to require it, even if you selected to do that in your workplace. Um, But that is definitely uh, uh, being talked about heavily right now. And it's a concern by a lot of employers. Um, What the standard recommendation is out on the street is to encourage your employees to get the vaccine and provide them with information on the vaccine. OHA has a lot of information. They have a a dedicated vaccine page now that talks about the vaccines that are out, uh, a lot of frequently asked questions. So there's some FAQs on the website that might be helpful. Um, And just making sure that folks know what the vaccine is, where to get it, why it's important, how effective it is, um, any side effects, and those types of things. Liz, you might have something to add on that too.
3: Yeah, there were um, a couple of things that came to mind. And there there is some guidance out there, for example, from EEOC um, and also Oregon Health Authority, but CDC also has a really great communication kit. So employers can talk using those materials um, about the vaccine with their employees. And as Kim mentioned, it's strongly um, encouraged for everyone that can to get the vaccine. That's probably the one thing that will help us get this pandemic um, under control. So as vaccines become available, making sure that people understand not only what the vaccine is, but what some of the, the risks are and the benefits for sure of getting that vaccine so that some of that vaccine hesitancy can be overcome maybe by employers providing information. I'll pop links into all that stuff into the chat so you can share those with your
0: listeners. Terrific. Thank you very much. So uh, as we think about these, the new rules, do we have any examples from either restaurants or hotel operators who've been effective in implementing the new rule into their operations? And obviously, unless you have permission, we don't need to hear any names, but just examples maybe that you've had of, of folks who have, who have done this and done it well.
3: I think um, we had a great webinar from a couple of safe folks last week that talked a lot about real life examples that people are doing. So if people have time, um, just tuning into that webinar when the link becomes available would be great. We can also send that to you. But one of the things that I thought was really great um, that we heard in that webinar was how to how to greet people in a way that is socially distanced. And, you know, at, at the beginning of the pandemic, we talked about elbow bumping and foot bumping. And uh, they talked about hotel chains that are now having people put their hands over their heart um, to say hello and goodbye. And I just, I liked that because you can be socially distanced, but it, it seems like a warmer way of greeting people.
2: Yeah, we could use that for sure right now. Just a, a little bit of... A little more kindness and and <laughs> warmth. Um, I will say, just from personal experience, um, you know, going out to eat is one of my and my partner's favorite things to do. And boy, oh boy, did we miss that at the beginning. And we were really working to support our local folks here, uh, where I live. Um, I've noticed quite a bit of creativity. Uh, related to the restaurants around my area with, you know, using up parking spaces is now expanded outdoor dining, you know, seating, if they can, if they have access to their parking lots. Also, the no contact ordering, you know, on your iPhone, I've been really impressed by a lot of folks, you know, just coming up with ways to to keep serving customers. Um, There's always the takeout, obviously, but it's impressed me quite a bit to see how much effort employers are you know putting forth out there to protect their workers and still maintain their business, and all of us are trying to support that as best we can too, just personally, much less you know from from safe standpoint and trying to figure out how to support our policyholders and businesses.
0: yeah, we certainly appreciate that. just real quick, conversely, have you heard of any challenges that operators have had in in implementing the new rules and and maybe how they've overcome those or have how we've kind of shifted, I guess, to address those those challenges.
3: You know, just thinking about the restaurant um and lodging um business, those are those have definitely been some of the ones that have been hardest hit by restrictions. And so, you know, my heart really goes out to him on a personal level, because I'm I like him, was uh, you know, that's one of our pleasures is experiencing other places and, you know, trying new restaurants. And so um, I, I did have opportunity uh, at one point to do the outdoor dining. And I think that people um, were challenged at first to figure out how we can do outdoor dining and weather. Um, I happen to have a little pod that we sat in and I know that um, just for people's information, if they don't know, OHA has put out new, new guidance for restaurants and what those pods can look like for outdoor dining and making sure that, you know, they're still attractive. And I, I think anything um, as far as that can be uh, really great to maintain that customer base because there, there are lots of us out there that want to continue to support our local restaurants so they can, they can make it through this. Yeah, I think
1: there's a there's a lot of best practices out there that that people are sharing and, and seeing a little bit in the news as well. Um, it's great, good to highlight those. I want to go back to a little bit um, talking about the uh, permanent rule. I know that businesses did uh, a bit of work to sort of make adjustments and be prepared. Uh, in fact, uh, it was in December, I think, that businesses were required to complete the exposure risk assessment along with some other forms there. But are employers expected to update these assessments as new regulations or anything has changed or added to those rules?
2: Really, the, uh, any updating to your exposure risk assessment is, is most likely going to need to happen if you have a different exposure scenario in your workplace, not necessarily going to be required to be updated uh, by the regulations. It's more about your workplace and if anything's changed then you should be updating uh, that exposure risk assessment. So looking at your work tasks, your work design, the environment in your workplace, those are the things that you would need to update your risk assessment for, but I don't see anything coming that would require some form of frequency around that, just based on a a frequency. It's really with regard to any changes in your workplace.
1: Mm -hmm. Right, thanks. Can, can one of you maybe give a quick summary of what's required for notification of employees when a COVID-19 exposure occurs? That's something that we've been asked uh, by members about.
3: Yeah, this is for sure a question we get a lot. And I think um, a couple things that I want to kind of give some background on is first, you have to determine whether an exposure has occurred. So what we know about what is considered a work-related exposure is that you know it happens at work. There's the six feet. Someone has spent 15 minutes, cumulative time, within six feet of someone who is a known or presumed case. We do get a lot of questions about, hey, someone's roommate or family member um, was positive for COVID and now they're quarantining. Do we need to notify people that were you know in close proximity to that person who is now quarantining? And uh, unfortunately, the answer is it depends. You have to kind of do a little bit of homework and find out whether that person who was quarantining, um, what the time frame was, you know, were they exhibiting symptoms as well? Or are they quarantined just because they had um, contact with this positive case? Um, so first determining whether an exposure happened. Um, and then there are two sets of employees that you need to notify the exposed and the affected. So the exposed are those folks that did spend that 15 minutes of time within six feet of the person who is positive or presumed case. And um, so it, it helps, I think, to for people to really be very aware of their workflows. Um, that can be a, probably quite a big challenge in um, restaurants where you have people coming and going and they're not necessarily working right next to someone at all times. So um, making sure that you have a good understanding of your workflow so you can identify exposed employees once you have a positive case um, that is present in the workplace. And then the affected employees are people who have worked in the area. For restaurants, that is probably going to be, you know, your entire restaurant, because again, it's going to be a little difficult to track who spent 15 minutes with who throughout a, a a day or a couple of days or whatever time period you have to take a look at. Um, And the other thing I would have people keep in mind is that the uh, workplace outbreaks are published publicly. And so it might be better to err on the side of notifying more than is required, just so that you can be transparent in your communication with your employees. So if you have two restaurants, for example, and there was an outbreak in one, but there's some you know, cross-pollination, so to speak, with staff with those, it, it probably is not going to hurt you to notify uh, both locations' employees that there there was an outbreak. You don't have to necessarily consider them all exposed employees. They wouldn't be. But just to, to be transparent and make sure that everybody has uh, that communication happening, I don't think you would want to be in the position where employees find out there was an outbreak in their workplace from an OHA publication or a news article or something like that. Oh yeah, I think I think we've
1: found you know this past year. I mean, transparency and just more communication with your staff is so important in these situations.
2: Yeah, I think we've, we've been talking about the currency of trust, especially right now, we need to be able to, you know, trust each other and have credibility. And and that's, that's why we like to err on the side of transparency. Um, Oregon OSHA also does have a model notification policy on their website that folks can use if they are curious what that might look like, what, you know, a notification looks like. And Mm -hmm. so there's that to help too. That's great. I think one of the things uh, to note about that model notification
3: policy is that, you know, it's easily adaptable. And if you adopt it, then you're, you're meeting at least the Oregon OSHA guidelines, uh, requirements, right. excuse me. Yep.
1: Yeah. I think these, these, um, models and, uh, examples are really helpful. People don't have to, you know, start from scratch. They've got something to work from. So,
0: yeah, I think that consistency is important as well. So, That's a lot of information Uh, we're going to give everybody a a minute to digest that while we take a quick break and then we will come right back. Don't go anywhere.
4: Get guest service tips during COVID-19 challenges with the Oregon Hospitality Foundation's new on-demand video course, providing service while supporting safety. There are two versions available, one for restaurants and one for hotels. Both are available with Spanish subtitles. This quick and easy to use video course was created to help hotels and restaurants manage service challenges presented by the pandemic. Visit OregonGuestServiceSafety.org.
0: All right, welcome back. We are joined today by Liz Hill and Kim Henry, both from SAFE. And we are talking uh, about um, safety. We're talking about your well being. Um, We're talking about COVID-19 today, uh, a topic that I know, a lot of folks, obviously, right now are, are top of mind, top of uh, their mind awareness. So um, as we come back, we, we had been talking about some of the, the risk assessments and the, the temporary rules becoming permanent. Um, and now I think we want to get into some of the, uh, I guess, the nitty gritty of it, the, the details, if you will. Um, and so let's, let's talk about face coverings. Um, And I've got a couple of questions here for you. So we'll just kind of go rapid fire and and love to hear your responses. Um, Are employers required to provide face coverings to employees? And are they required to provide face coverings to customers? And I'll let you guys decide who wants to go first.
3: The answer to are they required to provide them to employees is yes. Short and sweet, that is part of the temporary rule. It's anticipated that will continue to be part of the the rule as it moves to permanent status. Um, So employers should really think about, uh, you know, how I'm going to manage my masks uh, for employees. Like, how many do I need? Where am I going to get my supply? What types are we going to do? How often are we going to replace them? Um, You know, what types are we going to get? So really thinking about and going back to that, that exposure risk assessment can really help you figure out uh, what types and um, how often I know we get a question a lot, how often should they be replaced? Um, The the requirement doesn't really specify, but I will tell you best practices at every shift. So whatever your shift is, or if they uh, become soiled. They should probably be replaced for disposables. And then, um, if you are issuing cloth ones, and employees are responsible for laundering them, or you're doing the laundering of those, those should also be clean between uh, shifts.
0: And, and Liz, I'm glad you brought that up. So, if you're a lot of people did pivot immediately to branded face masks, obviously the coverings that you know have your logo or something on them. Um, if, if you issue them, is it kind of like issuing a uniform? I mean, you you know, you get a certain number and then you're responsible. And what happens if the employee shows up without their branded mask? Do you then have to provide them with another one? Um, can you go into that a little bit?
3: Yeah, I think that employers have a lot of, um, area to decide what that looks like like the number of masks if they are branded and they're reusable how many are we going to give them I will say that if an employee shows up without one it is required that they wear one during the course of their work so you will have to have something in place to have a replacement for them if they they don't have one with them and then you would want to talk with them about expectations around how those masks are managed that they've been issued
1: Mm. great You know, with that, um, we were just talking on the break a little bit about challenges that businesses are having when people don't want to wear masks. And that could be employees, you know, as well as customers. Mm -hmm. So that's something that they need to deal with.
3: It's probably a little easier to deal with employees that don't want to wear masks because you are, uh, that is considered a hazard for other workers around them. So that's one way of controlling the hazard that people are exposed to in the workplace. So that should probably be fairly clear how an employer should deal with employees not wearing masks, but, but customers uh, can be a little trickier. And I know, I know
2: Kim has some experience
3: and um, I'd you know, love to hear from her about that one.
2: Well, I think, first of all, you know, even customers, clients um, are required to wear face coverings, as we know, under the Oregon Health Authorities guidance and recommendations. And also, even under the temporary rule for Oregon OSHA, uh, it states clearly that, as Liz and I have talked, it's a hazard in the workplace. It's It's been identified as a hazard in the workplace. So employers are required to make sure that clients or customers or those vendors, anybody entering their workplace or business needs to be wearing a face covering also. So... We know it's required, and then there's the acceptance or struggle with um, folks not wanting to wear a face covering. First of all, employers need to be making sure that they've post signage so it's clear that that's an expectation. Ideally, you are also training your folks that are on the floor to handle a situation or to contact, uh, you know, a supervisor or manager in the event that a client or customer doesn't want to wear a face covering so that you can maybe hopefully just mitigate that issue and, and address that and maybe pull folks off to the side and talk with them and educate them as to why this is important and that you are following the law. Um, so that would be one way to deal with it. Um, I know that Trader Joe's in Salem and some other um, businesses have found ways to handle this. I think they've been models for how to handle this. But I, you know, I've seen locally here just recently a particular market uh, have folks come in and videotape themselves uh, going up to the checkout and not wearing masks and basically harassing folks and putting that up on social media. So it's out there. It's very frustrating for all of us. Um, This is really a a health and safety issue for workers on the line. And we really want to be protecting those folks. So um, you can call the authorities. It's a Department of Health violation. um, And also your local authorities hopefully will be helping you. It's a, you know, you would call the non-emergency line but i think having that relationship maybe talking with your local authorities too ahead of time and you know maybe how you would deal with this uh, would be a recommendation too
0: Uh, Oh, sorry, go ahead. I did
3: also, sorry, I keep talking over you, Greg. I did also want to mention that OHA, just uh, with some of the changes they have around our restrictions, have just published new guidance for restaurants, and they specifically talk about some steps you can take around customers and mask wearing in that
0: guidance. So, we started to uh, answer this earlier. Employees uh, are required, obviously, and employers have to provide those. What about for customers, though? If a customer comes in without a mask, is an operator required to provide them with one if they don't have one?
2: You know, as I, and Liz can uh, speak to this too, maybe, but as I understand the rule, the requirement to provide is not clearly stated. The requirement to make sure that they are wearing a face covering is clearly stated. And so uh, what I've noticed is a lot of businesses having extra Uh, maybe the little pack of 50, you know, face coverings, kind of surgical masks for customers if they come in and they don't have a face covering.
3: I I think it's interesting. I I was just reading the OHA guidance this morning about this and um, they do not say um, it's required, um, but they say businesses should. So, strongly encouraged for businesses to have some sort of provision for for customers um okay. and again like kim mentioned many have a box or you can ask it the you know as you come in for a mask if you don't have one
2: and i know that businesses consider that customer service we are sure. helping you to be safe and keep our employees safe so that's just one other level of customer service if i go in and i you know i've i've walked in and i i don't do it anymore but there were a couple of times i i I got to the door and I realized, oh my gosh, I feel naked. I don't have my mask on. And I was just glad that they had something there and we kind of just laughed together and I put, I put the mask on that they offered and, you know, went on.
1: Speaking of customer service, thanks for bringing that up because I think there's a great alternative to de-escalation if you have training for your employees and, Uh, sorry, a little shameless plug here, but we are uh, launching a new training course and it's called Providing Service While Supporting Safety. This was developed by our Oregon Hospitality Foundation uh, with input from hospitality industry partners. So I think it's going to be a great tool to train the industry on uh, different ways that you can um, manage expectations, but also through communication and creating positive experiences, train them to, you know, help basically resolve some situations internally obviously if things escalate you want to make sure you call the authorities but uh you know i think this training course would be really helpful
0: yeah i've actually taken the one for uh restaurants and it took about 30 minutes it was great to see examples of you know real situations that you're probably encountering still uh as a server as a as a host. Um, and then, you know, kind of the right and the wrong ways to to deal with those. So, um that's a that's a great shameless plug, Lori. Thanks.
1: Yeah. Well, and I'll mention it at the end of the podcast too, but uh, if you go to dot org, you'll find out a lot of information about it. So
2: I love that. I might actually view that too. It's it's good to know how to de-escalate things and I know even as a customer myself, I've you know, wondered how I would handle that when I when I'm actually there and seeing you know workers um, in that situation. So good. Yeah, me too. I was thinking the same thing. Go check that out.
0: Yeah. So uh, Liz, real quick, uh, before I let Lori jump back in with another question, you you talked about uh, after every shift, you know, laundering or um, you know, replacing. I guess your uh, your surgical face coverings, if you will, for the cloth face coverings, is there any kind of guidance on how often those should be actually replaced? Um, You know, much like a, again, a uniform that maybe starts to get a little frayed or, um, you know, certainly you want to launder them, but is, is there any guidance on actually replacing one kind of putting it out of commission?
3: You know, that's a a really great question and there's not really super clear guidance out there from either CDC or OHA. Here's, here's Liz's take on that. Knowing what we know, (laughs) um, knowing what we are learning about cloth face coverings and which ones are more effective and how you decide and all of that stuff. I would say um, if you're cleaning them between every shift I would also be um, looking at them and checking things like how how are the elastic ear um, holders doing, if that's the technical term for them. I, do I have fraying? Am I starting to see uh, stains that don't wash out? Am I seeing holes or um, other damage happening to the face covering? And anytime you see that, of course, I think it would be time to replace.
0: Terrific.
2: I, I want to throw in there too and, and just asking employees, are they are they still fitting well too, or are they fraying as well? Because I've noticed even some of the ones that I wear um, personally, you'll start getting that little tickle on your nose of the, you know, the, the strands of fibers that are, and it just is annoying. And if you have to wear that all day at work, you, you know, you might ask your employer to, Hey, can can I get a new one here? So.
0: Absolutely.
1: Good. So I want to, I want to go back to um, some other uh, questions that uh, we've been asked about um, more frequently, and it and it's tied to the uh, the barriers. So that six feet physical distancing. What type of barriers can be used to reduce that six feet of physical distancing? And what kind of um, temporary versions, like plexiglass, might be available?
2: Yeah. So I'll jump on that one. Um, they do have Oregonosha in their appendix A for appendix A1. So it's the very first one for restaurants anyway, and and bars. And it does call out some specifics around either plexiglass, Lexan, um, some type of acrylic or other, they say impermeable physical barrier um, that's easily cleaned. That's what they're looking for uh, with regard to physical distancing, if you can't get that physical distancing, and you're going to use barriers, and that it should be uh, at least a foot higher than the head level for customers seated in any particular situation, and three feet wider, at least the width of the seat. Um, so between seats that they call that out specifically, temporary versions, I think, are allowed, you know, as long as it can be cleaned, and it fits that description, then that's fine. They can do that. And, and that really does help. But I think the, the other thing to point out is, we've and we've referred to this ongoing since this whole thing started, and Oregon OSHA looks at this, OHA, CDC, and, and, and everyone, it's good to look at this as a layered approach. So what you're doing in your workplace is a layered approach, and the physical barriers are one layer but they don't mitigate any other layers that you would want to make sure that you still have in place. So face coverings, really trying to design your workflow that you can get that distance, and if not, then using barriers. So all those things come into play for providing that
0: layered approach of protection.
1: Yeah, good ex- explanation there. I like that.
0: Kim, maybe you'll answer this one, or or you can kick it over to Liz, depending on who who wants to take it. But What would be some examples of, I guess, you know, reasonable alternative methods if employees can't stay six feet apart uh, based on the feasibility?
2: I'll start. And I know Liz will have some- She's dying
0: to get in there too. Some
2: nuggets of wisdom for sure (laughs) to add. (laughs) Um, I think reasonable alternative methods, anything kind of going along the lines of the layered approach. And I think if you've been thoughtful about what that is um, as far as if you can't design your workflow that you can stay six feet apart. Um, We we think of things, um, I think of things. So this is Kim's version of protection too is time and distance. And we know that close contact is considered within six feet for 15 minutes right? So that's the CDC definition of close contact. What we're trying to do is just keep people from being so close to each other for a long or extended period of time, if possible. And if you can't mitigate that, then you really need to be wearing the face mask anyway. um, You can do the barriers. You can limit the time that they're within that distance from each other. Um, You really, I think there's, creative ways to do this. But that's really the point is that if you can't do the, if the feasibility for six feet apart is not there. It's understood. It's going to be what else are you doing then to make sure that folks are protected as best they can be.
3: Yeah. And I'm, I'm just uh, thinking a couple other things. The barriers are specifically mentioned in the the rule, and in the, the a question and answer document that OSHA published and talked about feasibility, there are a couple other things that I think about. One is that, you know, it's not going to be the easiest thing to do, but you can increase the amount of respiratory protection that people are wearing. For example, so going from a face covering or mask to a an N95 respirator. Um, that offers additional protection. Um, one of the things that I keep reminding people of, this is a really unique situation for us in that the hazard to your health and safety is another person. So it's not like they have an ill intent towards you, but just the fact that you we breathe each other's air is what our hazard is. So just thinking about it in terms of that, how can I reduce the amount of air that I'm breathing from another person is really how you're going to control it. So it could be that you up the respiratory protection, it could be you take a look at the ventilation that you have available. And is there something that we can do to uh, make ventilation enhancements, for example, that will, that will uh, reduce that as well.
2: Yeah, and that's a good point. Uh, In, you know, increasing your outdoor air, increasing that dilution ventilation is, is Going to help for sure, and and that is called out in the rule uh, to try to do that anyway. You know, if you're outside, you have that. Typically, outdoor sitting seating for instance, with a restaurant, you have um, some level of outdoor dilution available. It's the indoor situations that get challenging. And so if if you're looking at you know reasonable alternative methods for an indoor setting, you really need to be very thoughtful and basically um, that you minimize the number of people in the area so that you can get that distance. You really have to work hard to figure that out because like Liz said, the other people are the hazard, which we're not used to. And there's asymptomatic spread too. So you, it's not intentional. You may not honestly know that you've got, uh, that you are infected and you can spread or transmit the disease. So that's why this is so essential.
1: Mm. Well, you guys have both shared so many great uh, resources and and information. You know, we're talking about integrating new workplace standards here. Um, What, What kind of resources and maybe training are available from OSHA and SAFE, you know, to help employers meet the employee training requirements?
3: Uh, So OSHA did publish a free online training course that gets at the general requirements of that training rule in the reg. Um, And so people can have their folks go through that. The piece that it doesn't cover is all those things about what we are doing as uh, an employer, Uh, site-specific or organization-specific actions that we're taking to protect you. So there's still a piece that each employer is going to have to do because it is very specific to what their actual operations are. Um, But that stuff about what is the virus, how does it spread, what are the symptoms, all of those general requirements are in that online training course from Oregon OSHA. So that's on their website. And you can do that and that that is considered good for that portion of the training.
2: And on SAFE, we have some forms that you can use for your infection control plan or your exposure risk assessment. Um, And I would recommend using those with your training. So you can have the Oregon OSHA poster um, and or go through the uh, training that Liz just mentioned um, from Oregon OSHA, but then to meet the specific needs of your workplace, use that information that you already have to do anyway, that exposure risk, the assessment that you went through, the job tasks uh, that you perform and where those exposure points are and what controls you have in place uh, to mitigate those and use that to train your employees. Great.
3: I just really wanted to mention there are two uh, very similar resources, both from Oregon OSHA and SAFE, and those are people. So Oregon OSHA has opened up virtual consultations for COVID-19. And I really, uh, if employers are having difficulty or trying to figure out the rule, that that's a really good thing to take advantage of. And then SAFE has consultants. You either have an assigned consultant or you can work with one of our safety services consultants to really kind of work through this uh, for your particular uh, business. That's
1: Yeah, that's great to know. I didn't know they had the the consultants. Um, I was just going to mention again that uh, we'll have some of the, the links here in our um, podcast notes when we post that.
0: Well, uh, Kim and Liz, is there anything that we haven't covered that you think it's important for employers and operators to know at this point?
2: Yeah, I just want to add, and I know Liz will expand on this, and that's really taking care of your mental health, doing a lot of good self-care for you and your employees, making sure they're doing it for themselves, and and just remembering that we're in this together, and there's help out there. Uh, You are not alone on this. If you've got questions, we're available. Um, We are here to help and uh, just making sure that we're taking care of ourselves. And I think Liz will have a little bit more on that too.
3: Yeah, I think one of the things that's been most striking for me um, is that there's a recognition from uh, CDC, OHA, and Oregon OSHA that stress um, has become a big part of how people are experiencing the pandemic. Um, And in particular workers and in particular Workers that might be working in an industry that has been heavily impacted, um, like your the industries that you know we're talking to today, and there's a lot that goes into that. There's the stress of uh, being exposed, potentially exposed in the workplace, or you know, as you're out and about just doing your thing, and also financial stress if if you've experienced layoff or you're not sure if your business is going to make it, or uh, you know, there's just so much rolled up into that. So making sure that um, as you do have employees helping them connect with resources that can help them with that. You know, we're, we're finding that parents, uh, particularly with school aged children are just extremely, um, struggling with mental health and other things right now because they're they have school going on in their home as well as you know all their other stuff that they've got to deal with so as an employer you can help connect with resources oregon has published safe and strong oregon which really deals with stress and resources out there for oregon um, citizens that they can connect with. And if you have things like employee assistance program or uh, mental um, health as part of your benefits, then just making
2: sure that folks know how they can they can access those resources. Yeah, definitely. We want to take care of each other through this whole thing.
0: Yeah, uh, it's very important. Well, thank you so much for reminding us all that that's a, a key component when we're looking at this this whole picture. So, Uh, We appreciate that, and we're going to take another quick break, and then we'll be back with Advocacy Watch.
4: Orla has your training needs covered at orlatraining.org. Find online food handler, alcohol server, guest service, serve safe, and more, including the newly added Providing Service While Supporting Safety for guest service tips specific to challenges presented by the pandemic. Visit orlatraining.org today to learn more about the courses offered or to register for training. All
0: right, well, welcome back. It's time for Advocacy Watch. This is where we boil down some of the local, state, and national government affairs issues that you should be aware of.
1: And there are a lot of things to be aware of, Greg. You, You are getting quite busy with the start of the legislative session, so tell us what's going on.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. So as you know, uh, this is going to be the annual legislative session, lasts uh, 180 days, uh, and it just started a couple of weeks ago. And so, of course, we take a look at all the bills that have been dropped. There's almost 3000 of them at this point, And we're tracking about a, a little over 100, uh, maybe close to 120 of those bills.
1: Just for our industry.
0: Just for our industry, yeah. Some of them are pretty specific. Some of them are more general business, but uh, those are the bills that we are keeping an eye on, either uh, supporting or opposing or just monitoring to make sure that we know what's going to happen with them.
1: Yeah. So what are some examples of ones that we are supporting?
0: So we're taking a look at a couple of different bills that uh, we want to put our support behind, which includes uh, limiting liability uh, for businesses with relation to the COVID-19. We're also looking at a couple of different bills. There's three bills out there right now that would prohibit the termination of commercial tenancy for non-payment. So basically, we want to make sure that uh, people don't get kicked out of uh, wherever they've got their operation because they haven't been able to pay. Um, and there's a couple of bills that address that, so uh, as well as extending the to go cocktails on a more permanent basis,
1: yeah, I know that there are there are a lot of uh, bills you're watching. What about some that uh, Orla might be opposing that that would be uh detrimental to our industry?
0: yeah, absolutely again, uh, quite a few of these, but uh, just a couple of highlights. So there's a couple of bills related to uh, prohibiting single-use plastic food service wear, uh, prohibiting polystyrene. And honestly, at a time right now when our industry is suffering as much as it is, any new kind of policy that's going to make it more difficult for us to do business is just not something that we really want to see happen. So we're going to be opposing that. Um, There's also a couple of bills related to the family leave, uh, paid family leave that we think go a little bit too far and uh, would make it very difficult uh, for operators uh, to conduct their business. So, um, and as always, there are bills around the transient lodging tax rate uh, and where that money might be spent other than tourism promotion and, and marketing and management. So, um, we're definitely uh, opposing the bills that come up on that as well.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: We want to talk about some that we're just sort of monitoring that we want to keep keep a close eye on.
0: Yeah. uh, And I want to make sure that people understand that when we say we're monitoring a bill, it's usually for a couple of different reasons. Number one, uh, we want to make sure that we keep an eye on these bills because uh, they have the potential uh, to be amended uh, down the road, which could, you know, either be something that would be harmful to our industry um, or something that, you know, we might agree with. And so uh, we kind of just keep an eye on these. The other thing is when it comes to the relating clause of a bill, there is something that can be done procedurally called a a gut and stuff, where you basically take the uh, body of a bill, you pull it out, and you put in uh, new language. And as long as it relates to the relating clause, you can do that. And so uh, we try to keep an eye on anything that has to do with taxes or lottery, um, anything having to do with um, some of the labor and, and general business items that we've already talked about. So just want to make sure that we're we're keeping an eye on those and, and that we know uh, what's happening with them as they go through the process.
1: Yeah, that's good. There's a lot to, to watch on this. And just a reminder to any of our industry members that are listening, um, we do work with our government affairs committee. You want to talk about them real quick?
0: Yeah, so uh, just had a meeting of our government affairs committee and really appreciated the participation, um, really appreciate our two co-chairs, uh, Nick Pearson with the Jupiter Hotel and Jupiter Next, uh, and TJ Burkle with uh, Darden Restaurants, help us lead that effort. Um, and so we went through and and pulled a couple of the bills, went through the slate of bills that we both support and oppose and, and that we are monitoring um, and we got input from that group on some of these bills to help guide us as we go through the legislative process. Um, really appreciate that participation and, of course, the perspective that our members bring, because ultimately uh, these bills are going to impact them.
1: So in addition to all the legislative work, um, certainly we're focused on the needs of our uh, members still in that extreme risk category, which is a number of counties. So, you know, what are what are we doing for them now?
0: Yeah, so 25 of Oregon's 36 counties are, are, as of today, currently still in the extreme risk category, which means no indoor dining. But one of the issues, I think, is that every two weeks, uh, the governor's office and the Oregon Health Authority reassess counties and where they fall based on whatever metrics they've uh, decided on uh, for that. And so, you know, for our members, uh, it's a matter of do they ramp up in anticipation of that? Um, You know, are they going to be moved from a lower category back into an extreme risk category and and uh, not be able to offer indoor dining? Um, And we've got some inconsistencies among the data that's being reported by the counties and the state. And so, at Orla, you know, we believe that uh, eliminating the extreme risk category altogether uh, would probably be something that that is going to be more helpful. We have members that are already calling for that. Um, it would provide the consistency that that we would need. It would open indoor dining up to the entire state, which, again, uh, you know, we are still waiting for the data behind uh, restaurants being some sort of a source of transmission. Uh, we're a very, very small percentage, you know, less than 2% of any workplace outbreaks, and we have shown that we are safe. Our members are you know, out there cleaning and sanitizing and doing everything they can to keep their uh, guests and customers safe and their employees safe, and just having three risk categories, eliminating the extreme risk, we think would be extremely beneficial to the health and well-being of those operators and their employees.
1: Yeah, it's a big push to get even just a sliver open. So how about the federal front? What's going on there?
0: Yeah, uh, a lot obviously happening with the new administration and uh, Democrats in control of both the House and the Senate. And so, you know, we know that there was a another round of the PPP program that came out. Um, folks can take advantage of that. And there were actually some uh, there were some elements of that that were very beneficial to restaurants. Uh, and the hospitality industry and so we're we're really pleased with uh, what we got in terms of uh, some of the I don't want to call them concessions but some of the elements of that and in addition in the new COVID-19 relief package the talk has been that there will be a a specific uh, grant program for restaurants of 25 billion dollars it's not the restaurants act that we've been talking about it's not the senate version of the restaurants act but it's still $25 billion in grants for restaurants that desperately need some sort of capital right now to keep their doors open.
1: Good, so more on that front later.
0: Yeah, and of course, the National Restaurant Association updates their website and uh, we pass that information along as we get it. Um, And so we'll keep everybody updated on the progress.
1: Thanks for the update, Greg. Uh, We did get a listener question
0: and it is...
1: I don't understand the new guidance for lottery. What am I allowed to do if I'm in the extreme risk category?
0: Great question. Um, And I'm sorry that uh, our listeners having a little trouble understanding it. I'll try to make it clear, but um, lottery was able to issue some new guidance for any of the retailers in the extreme risk category. And essentially what that means is that if you offer outdoor dining or to go or delivery, um, then you're able to open up, you qualify to open up your your lottery uh, machines again. The lottery will turn them on. You're still not able to do uh, food or drink inside, which means that if you've got somebody who wants to go in and play a machine, uh, they've gotta leave their drink outside, they've gotta leave their food outside. Uh, They can certainly come back out and enjoy that, but uh, just not while they're inside. They'll have to wear a mask the entire time And while you're in that extreme risk category, your machines have to be spaced six feet apart, uh, regardless of any kind of plexiglass barriers or anything that you might have to separate out the machines. Um, While you're in the extreme risk category, the machines have to be six feet apart. So, uh, But it does mean that uh, for retailers that do have machines and they do have them six feet apart and they do offer outdoor dining to go or delivery, They can get those machines turned back on and they can allow guests to come back in and start playing. Good. So
1: pretty, pretty specific guidelines there.
0: Yeah, we hope so. And if you have any other uh, additional questions, I think the lottery has got a pretty uh, good um, guidance on their website that uh, lays it all out for folks. All right. Well, we appreciate those questions. So please keep the emails coming to info at OregonRLA.org. And let us know not only your government affairs questions, but any opinions and what's going on in your area as well. And I'd like to say thank you again to Liz Hill, Total Worker Health Advisor at Safe Corporation, Kim Henry, Industrial Hygienist at Safe Corporation, and of course, Lori Little, Orla's Director of Communications, and to you for joining us today. I'm your host, Greg Aspley, Director of Government Affairs for Orla. Thanks for listening.